there's rumoured in legend to be a, a subterranean passage between the two locks, and in Loch Mora there is the evil counterpart of Nessie, who will drown people in upturned boats and eat livestock, uh, a very fearsome water creature. And a lot of people have rumoured that actually it's the same creature as Nessie, but um, it's where Nessie goes when she's in a bad mood. When she's on her holiday, she comes out to Loch Ness and just kind of floats around and appears to the odd tourist. Having moved to Scotland very recently, I've been really keen to get started on telling some stories from this amazing country. As some of you who are keen listeners of the podcast will already know, I love a good bit of folklore, especially when it relates to landscapes and relationships with nature. So, it's only natural that my first episode from here was with Folklore Scotland. It also just so happened to fall on Halloween, and seeing as the origins of the holiday are very much ingrained in Gaelic and Celtic history, it seemed like the perfect opportunity to talk about all of the sinister creatures that contribute to some of the absolute best folk stories that Scotland has to offer. Think vampires, water monsters, witches, evil fairies. These stories have it all. So if you wanted some spooky stories this Halloween, you've come to the right place. I'm Rebecca. And I'm David. So we are the co-founders of Folklore Scotland. So uh, we first started up in 2018. At that point, we weren't a charity, weren't quite sure what we were. We just knew we were interested in folklore. And from there, in doing an elevator scheme at Dundee University, we had a look at what we actually wanted to get out of what we were doing. And a lot of that we kind of condensed down into one real sentence was telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. So it was to promote and preserve folklore using the facilities we've now got available to us, which really came in helpful over lockdown, which just happened a year or two after we first set out. So we were kind of ahead of the ballpark on what a lot of charities were at that point, uh, which really helped us. We officially registered in 2019 as an actual registered charity. And then since then, we have dedicated ourselves to, as I mentioned before, promoting and preserving folklore. And that's come in a variety of different ways. We've done it through the website, which was our, our first development, kind of sharing retellings of folk tales. And um, we have also done a lot of collaborative projects with artists who have been looking to illustrate folk tales. We've done an exhibition in the past and are looking to do one again. We've also worked with students, either of folklore and media, in order to help them develop their understanding and to provide work experience placements for universities. And we just finished an Erasmus year placement as well for a student. On top of that, we've also just gained capacity then again to continue our newsletter, which we started early in the year with the Erasmus student we had over. And of course, we have the podcast. So we've the podcast that we do is kind of three different podcasts. It's split into three groups. One of them is the Cranog, and that one is focused on a topic every month. We also have 
the newer podcast that was the Beastie Bothy, and they will look at creatures each week, different folk creatures in Scotland, and have a kind of chat about those ones. And that one replaced the Into the Greenwood, which was a comparative folklore podcast that looked at different tellings of the same story. Because as well as in Scotland, there's various different versions of a similar story across a lot of the European countries, we share a lot of links in folklore. You'll find similar stories in Germany, France, Ireland, England, especially of the kind of big childhood tales that were told everywhere. So uh, that was one we did there. And then we also have every second week we do the campfire tales, which is just a retelling of stories. Typically what we will promote is, is folk tales. That's a lot of what we do is, is storytelling side. But we're quite fortunate in through doing the Cranog, we get to explore other elements of the kind of wide ranging and difficult to find area that is folklore um, and we get to look at traditions festivities and folk customs which is something we're getting to chat a bit about today so yeah what one of my favorite stories about setting up the organization is the fact that first of all it came out of procrastinating we were both doing our dissertations at the time and we just really couldn't be bothered doing them so we were like let's enter this business competition so we came up with this like storytelling travel app and then that's how we got into the program that helped us like develop it and this whole thing was all about it was kind of like dragon's den style like they were setting us up with mentors and like telling us how to market and they were like how are you going to get profit properly grilling us and then at the end of that whole process they were like so what are you going to do and we were like we're going to be a charity we're not going to have any money <laughs> <laughs> but i think it's it's exactly what it needed to be i think yeah. <laughs> and, um, obviously, you guys mentioned that there needed to be a little bit of a revival. And it's something that is happening in Ireland as well. From the podcast that I did last year, when I was over there, there's a big appetite for folk lore and folk tales and making that connection between our past and our present through these traditional folklores that seem to have dropped out of favour a little bit. So why is it important to you guys? Why have you felt that it's important to tell these stories and keep it alive? I think that folklore tells us, you know, about the past and how people used to live um, and how they used to see the world. But it also speaks to who we are nowadays. I think like the lessons that are in folklore are universal. And I think to lose those stories would be to lose a part of who we are. So it is really reassuring to see that people are, especially younger people, are really eager to learn about the stories from their own local areas. And I think the local stories are especially fascinating because, you know, there's the ones that kind of happen on a grand scale across Scotland, for example. But then I think the little local stories about, you know, that rock down the street that your grand told you stories about, I just, I just love that you know the kind of intense local nature of them and what that tells you about like the place that you grew up and the place that you know is attached to all your memories and stuff I think they're kind of similar to that I think there's sort of in my mind there's three main kind of areas where I think folklore is still important and relevant a lot of people think that folklore you've got the word lore in there it's something ancient and historic and it's not important it's stuffy old books in the library but it's a, a kind of living link to history because a lot of it is oral traditions or in the case of folklore, it's some sorts of skills at times, dances, songs, ballads, all encapsulate within that. It's a living link to the past and also builds the feeling of community. So all these kind of would be told around campfires or even when I was younger, we'd have Kayleys at the village hall and someone would read a Burns poem or tell a story and we'd do a dance. And it was all that kind of custom bringing groups together. 
it, it always has in my head the image of everyone round a, a cosy campfire, although uh, when I was young, it was really around all the electric heaters in the village halls. We tried to not freeze in the winter, but it had that idea of, of community there. I think also it serves an important role nowadays for elements of preserving tangible items as well. So, so stone circles, standing stones, things like that, that possibly would have not been here today if there wasn't the rumour of, if you'll move that stone, your entire valley will be sank. Or if you... Uh, go and try and dig turf off the roof of this one, you're going to be captured by the fairies. You know, rumours like them, even kind of in the Victorian times where they didn't really believe them, you were still reluctant to do something that just, you know, nowadays people will still not really walk under a ladder, even if they don't believe it's bad luck. Just, it's not far out their path to not do that. So the small deterrence, I think, can have helped. And I think even today, as well as for preserving for stop people destroying, although a lot of preservation organisations are now preventing that legally, it's still important for drawing in funding and tourism for those places. We were in, it's not a Scottish one, but we were in Blarney last week, was it? A week before in Ireland. And the amount of people going to see that stone, so you know, the, the amount of funding it can bring into areas through these folktales, it's still important for preservation today. Yeah, um, and something that you touched on there you know the idea about stone circles and like the, the the tangible link to the stories i think it speaks to there's a connection with our environment there because our ancestors and the people that told these stories they you know they were so much more in touch with the elements and with nature just because of the way that they lived off the land so there's a connection there for us as well like when we go out into the world mm. and like you say we can see the stones and see the trees that there are stories about yeah i think it's amazing aspect of like if you go to a stone circle and touch those stones, they're the same stones that were touched by people 2,000 years ago. And that's mm-hmm. just amazing. Exactly the same place. The landscape around them will have changed and evolved hugely in that time. But that small little, maybe 20-metre radius will be the same little plot that it has been for a couple of thousand years possibly, and longer in, in a lot of the stone circles cases. And then my third small point on that, why I think it's still relevant, is who doesn't need a bit of magic? You know? Life can be a bit mundane. It's good to have these little bits and pieces that aren't quite fact, aren't quite fiction, but just fit the fun ground in between. If there's not a dragon involved, it's not (laughs) worth doing. (laughs) Totally agree. (laughs) You've actually touched on a point that I was going to ask at the end of the podcast, but we can definitely discuss it now, which is how you think that are there elements of Scottish folklore that you believe feed into modern day environmentalism and modern day love for nature that you can really pinpoint despite there being a, a more recent decline in these belief systems? Because as I, I'm going to stop talking about relating back to the uh, to the Irish podcast, but obviously there's so many links between them. Um, she was discussing exactly what you said. If, if you build a if you make a pile of sticks and they're gone in the morning you shouldn't build on that land um and that's something that any construction firm throughout the the majority of Ireland lives by um which is amazing um that that's the case but yeah are there are there specific things that you can think of which really feed into uh, it really feed into kind of modern day preservation and and fear about some things even one of the things that actually just sprung to mind there, it was something that we touched on the podcast a few weeks ago to do with, that is a bit to do conservation. They were looking at building a big um, offshore salmon farm 
in was it Sky or Lewis? Lewis, I think. Um, and one of the objections to the proposal by quite a decent sized group of petition was the protection of the blue men and the minch and the fairies that were around there. And they objected to this plan proposal. Now, the plan proposal never went through and the council said it wasn't because of consideration of the blue men and the minch. But you, you never quite know. Maybe they're just saying that so they didn't have to deal with the hassle. There was quite a, a big grip in force in protection of the fairies. And they said it wasn't just for, you know, the fairies' sake. The, the fishermen attending this, this salmon farm would also be at risk. So it was for everyone's benefit. Yeah. So I think there is still a... Definitely. A Even if the council weren't going to admit that, that's why. I, I bet somewhere at the back of their mind, they're like, hmm, maybe that's a, an additional consideration to have. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you don't want to be the one that approves the the kind of destruction of the fairies because they'll know and they'll come after you, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, <Yep>. So <laughs> discussing, like, fear um, is a good way to kind of get us started on the focus, I guess, of the of today's podcast because we're in the month of October. There's a lot of folklore to do with this time of year across Europe. And especially to do with Halloween, which is not called Halloween here. And it, I mean, in the modern day, that's what people kind of refer to it. This is where Halloween was started, not under that name, um, which I know will be kind of a surprise to a lot of people. Because I think people think the old name of it is Old Hallows Eve, which is also not the old name for it. It's an old name for it. But I mean, we could sit and talk about folklore for the next week, I'm sure, without having a break. (laughs) So it's probably good for us to narrow it down and and kind of speak of some of the more scary, fearful uh, main characters of Scottish folklore. But also, I would love to hear from you guys about the origins of Halloween here, which you can also tell us what the actual proper name for it is, and what it means and whether there are some traditions and stories surrounding it. Yeah, so I guess... To start, I probably want to put the disclaimer that we don't really know a lot about the Celts. So anything that I'm away to say, I'm not like an anthropologist. I'm not an archaeologist. I'm just a girl in my bedroom researching <laughs> with an avid interest in folklore. So um, a lot of this is kind of the general consensus and what people have gathered from what we know and the kind of estimations that we've made. So. Everyone knows that the modern Halloween was is celebrated on October 31st and that's when people dress up, roam the streets, kind of drop into people's houses for, you know, sweets and things. There's party games. I'm not sure about over in America how often they do the party games part of it. But in the UK, um, you know, you would go to a Halloween party and they would be like bobbing for apples and trying to eat a donut that's hanging on a string without using your hands. So all that kind of things. And then also obviously carving pumpkins. But Halloween is said to have ancient origins tied to the Celtic festival of Savin, which was is believed to be New Year celebration for the Celts. Um, that would actually happen on the night of the 31st of October going into the 1st of November overnight. So the 1st of November would be like the New Year, essentially. And it marked the start of winter and it was a significant time for our ancestors due to the harvest cycles. At this time of year, that would be it for your planting season, it for your harvest. Um, This was you kind of settling in for a long winter and hopefully you would have had a good harvest. So you'd have, you know, a feast or celebration to mark that. And then as winter approached, people 
kind of retreated to their homes, um, symbolising a period of hibernation. You're not working on the fields or on the land as much. You're kind of taken to a more reclusive, slow way of living, which I wish we still did, to be honest. And winter is often associated with death. It's when nature and the world becomes cold and barren. Like I say, there's no fields being sown and it's a season that's associated with the Kaliak, which is the Scottish crone. She's like the goddess of winter. And Savin also has strong connections to the spirit world as it's seen as a boundary between the light side of the year and the dark side of the year, between summer and winter and life and death. It's thought to be a point in time where the veil between the world of the living and the dead is at its thinnest and spirits, whether that's benevolent or malevolent, will be able to wander and have connection with people in the living world. So to ward off these malevolent spirits, people would carve scary faces into turnips or disguise themselves as ghouls. And they also honoured their ancestors on the, at the same time. So for example, they would do what's called a dumb supper, where they would hold a meal and they would put an empty place setting for one of their deceased ancestors and lay it with food just as a way to honour them, essentially, as an offering. But death also symbolised a new beginning. So there was a hopefulness to Savin, um, kind of reflected in the way it's a new year. It's a time for reflection, looking ahead, but also celebrating the cycle of life and light and the promise that the sun is eventually going to rise again. Um, so fire was a big part of that, which I'll touch on in a minute. But you mentioned All Saints Day. So there's Savin, the Celtic New Year, but the 1st of November is also celebrated by the Roman Catholic Church as All Saints Day or All Hallows or All Hallows Mass. And it's a day for honouring saints and the recently departed, a bit like Savin is, for celebrating the ancestors. In Scotland, um, not quite now. Nowadays, we've moved over more to the American side of, you know, your trick-or-treating going around in any kind of costume of Wonder Woman or not necessarily a scary figure. Even back to when I was younger, which wasn't that long ago compared to the grand scheme of Halloween, um, <laughs> we would still... It was a scary costume. You were a vampire, a witch, or a mummy, or something like that. You would go around, and it wasn't trick or treating. It was guising that we would do. So that was you'd go into a house and you'd perform a party trick, so a song or a dance, or um, oh, I a love story, that or a poem, something like that. So, yeah, so yeah. Nice yeah, you had to work for your feet. <laughs> I think that does date back quite far. I was reading quite a good thing earlier when I was preparing for this to do with an account from the 18th century in which it was common for them all to go around to kind of one of the old local women's house and a group of them would all sit there and they'd tell these stories between them and perform a bit in order to get their punch at the end and that that kind of thing going on. So it's something that dates back a good few hundred years and it's part of the community feeling rather than just turning up and going trick-or-treat and getting a sweet at the door you you engage with them some people used to stand at the door and do your wee poem, poem. other people would have the full group in and you'd put almost in full production on in their living room so that seems to be something that does date back at quite a few years there mm-hmm. at least you know until the kind of 1700s and before that quite probably the, well there was mentions in some sources of them doing outside festivities so in fields with the full neighbourhood. I don't know if I'd quite fancy that at the end of October in Scotland, but <laughs> and there was a mention as well to do with the, in, in some communities they would uh, gather in ferns on the day that would be just dying off at this time of year and be dry, light them and then around the ashes the different community would come out and based on seniority would place a rock in a circle around the ashes and the next day on the first which was Halloween well, the, was the, the Hallows Day or whatever mm-hmm. it was meant to be 
they would go out and have a look. And if your footprint was in the ash and your rock gone, you're meant to die within the year. So that was the kind of outdoors version, the indoors version when I was younger and for the last few hundred years before was, you'll know, say a nice poem and tell a story. So it's quite the uh, more recent one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in terms of the, the far back version you mentioned to do with the, the Celtic side, we don't know as much about that because there wasn't the written authorities there. Mm-hmm. We know as far back as the Pope's declaring, I think it was about 800, there would be a, a holiday um, across all Catholic and Christian countries, well, as far as they controlled. But there does seem to be indications that there was an earlier festivity. There was the Cologne calendar, which I think is from the 2nd century, I think was found in France, and seems to indicate, well, all the leading authorities thought indicated that the Celtic calendar started at the end of October, start of November, and it was marked by a three-day festivity. And in that, there would be all the celebrations that, We've kind of mentioned there'd be big fires, there'd be storytelling, there'd be going around in your costumes and that kind of thing. Um, there is some disputes to do with that because of anything of that age where there's limited authorities, you never quite know, but it is thought the, the origins of it that could date back at least a couple of thousand years and then from there has gradually became what we know today. Yeah, and just going back to the guising slash trick-or-treating bit there, that comes from this idea uh, guising being like disguise the idea of disguising children to go out and have fun in the community so they didn't get kidnapped by a spirit which I think kind of ties into the idea of like changelings mm-hmm. um you know not wanting your kids to be taken away by the by the fairies and there's also another aspect and kind of origin to guising or trick-or-treating and that is souling and that ties in with the All Saints Day and that, that was the tradition of going door to door to ask for these things called soul cakes in exchange for prayers for the people that were in purgatory and that apparently also included children children dressing up. So it all kind of ties together. So I mentioned earlier about Halloween games that people tend to play. So I think the most obvious one is Dukin for Apples or Bobbin for Apples and you know everyone knows the game. There's a a tub with water in it with apples floating in it and then you have to tie your hands behind your back and bite an apple and get it out but there's a surprisingly romantic origin behind it for being a game that's played on halloween which is typically to do with like spooky stuff so each apple would represent a person and if the duker successfully bit uh, they, they would all have like names written on them and if the duker successfully bit an apple with their love interest on it in one go it would be a successful relationship and if it took two attempts then you know they could give it a go but it might not last that long and then if it was three attempts it was ill-fated and they should not bother and they should just walk away and never speak to each other again oh you'd be so good <laughs> you'd have a wet face and no love interest yeah what if you're just really bad well, you at don't the game? have a very like wide mouth <laughs> Then you're never going to find the the yeah the love of your life. Yeah. Maybe just bring along some crab apples with you as Ooh, well. Oh, nice! I mean, there's yeah. plenty of these at this time of year. Um, so. Yeah, exactly. Because exactly. I was wondering, I was thinking, why this game associated with Halloween, and why apples? And you know, there's not you know they kind of represent fruitfulness and immortality in a lot of stories and cultures. But I was also thinking, maybe it's just convenient. Like this is the time of year that you get them. And they float Maybe in water. everyone's just got so, too many, so they're trying to get rid of them. Maybe it was just handy. <laughs> they do keep better than most ones. Like your harvest for apples is about the end of September-ish area, so they'll keep a bit longer, whereas strawberries and things will be long gone. Yeah, exactly. And potatoes wouldn't be quite as delicious. <laughs> yeah. oh, I, I think you would be aiming for the third try on those cases rather than being into... <laughs> 
going to do this year, kids. <laughs> or Bobbin for ties. <laughs> do they not sink in? I have no idea. I think they might. Even worse. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a couple of other games that people used to play that are mentioned in a poem by Burns called Halloween. Um, he wrote this big poem basically about a community coming together to celebrate Halloween. And it's really nice. I would recommend reading it. Um, it's very wholesome. But there he mentions a couple of little things that people used to do. Again, surprisingly to do with love and marriage on Halloween. And one of them was that engaged couples each throw a nut onto the bonfire and if it burned quietly their future was happy and if it spat violently then their marriage would be sour. So there's something that people can do. And this next one, it's, I feel there's a bit of spin to this because living in Scotland and being surrounded by, you know, Scottish humour, I don't think that this is interpreted in the way that the source interpreted it. So it's said that people would pull old stalks of cabbage out of the ground after dark without looking at them, and the height and girth of the stalk predicted the height and frame of the future betrothed. Now, I don't know anyone who's the size of a cabbage, so I can only assume that knowing people, it's talking about something else. <laughs> um, but if the if the stalk had loam on it, then uh, it would be a wealthy future as well. Can I just pop in on, on your one to do yes. with the throwing the nuts on the fire there? When I was having to read through different folk tales around Halloween in Scotland, one thing that even on tales that weren't focused on Halloween, if Halloween was mentioned in the tale somewhere, they would have somebody throwing a nut on a fire. Mm. And I think as well as what you were saying about it being a good fortune for the marriage, it seems to have been good luck in general. Mm -hmm. um, and it seemed to be such a, a wide thing that they would make a point in some of the stories of the family or the group would go out and they would harvest the nuts in, on purpose in order to get them there ready for Halloween when they would eat them and throw the ones in the fire in order to do the tradition. Ah. In one of the stories, there was it was an interesting story. It was a bit of a strange one, um, but it was a, a boy who was determined he was going to be a thief and his mum was determined he was not going to be a thief. So she went to church and tried to plead for him not to be and get the Lord's blessing. And he stood outside the church and shouted down, going, thievery, thievery, thievery. <laughs> and then she was like, well, I heard it when I came out of church, so you must have the Lord's blessing to do it. Um, <laughs> and she let him be a thief, but she would determine that he'd be the best thief so he wouldn't get caught and hung. Because she was, she always had a line throughout the story that recurred, you'll be hung on the gallows at wherever. And so she got the best thief to train him and got trained up. And on his first big job, they were in this house and there was a fire on. He realised it was Halloween and he was determined to throw a nut in the fire. And the other guy was like, no, you'll make a noise, it'll alert them. <laughs> and it did, he did do it, it made a noise, it alerted them. The other guy ran out, they all chased him and he nicked all the money. So it did kind of work out for him, this throwing the nut and it did get him the luck on Halloween. His so mum is a su supportive queen. <laughs> it, the story goes on for about another 20 pages. It's quite an epic, this piece about this cheeky thief. But, yeah, love that. So that was the Halloween centered portion that got him some luck there by throwing the nut in the fire. And there was quite a lot of other bits. And Wilson's Tale of the Borders, he did quite a good little summary of Scotland's Halloween that we might touch on later. But in it, he mentioned before they all went to the person's house for Halloween itself, they went out and gathered nuts and they had them in all different forms of food. But they also made sure they had the bowl there ready to throw on the fire for, for Halloween to grant them luck. So. And I think looking back now to my own childhood when we went guising i mean you never wanted a nut but the older generations would give you a nut you, you always got peanuts didn't yeah. you yeah you always got peanuts when you went and you weren't so. happy about it because you <laughs> wanted a mars bar I, I did always wonder why you got peanuts because i never got them any other time of year and it wasn't just like you're so, you got your peanuts in the shells and that yeah. was the only time of year you got your peanuts in the shells yeah because it seems like they kept throwing peanuts in the fires until 
kind of well the last story I saw that mentioned it was the early 1900s but it quite possibly kept on going beyond then I just haven't got any books that new. well I know what my trick-or-treaters are getting this year (laughs) (laughs) I guess on the subject of fire my last kind of station on the little whistle stop tour of Halloween is just the the role of fire and Savin is sometimes referred to as a fire festival similar to its spring counterpart Beltane which is on the 1st of May and that's kind of a celebration of coming into summer and beginning like the the outdoor season if you like while Savin is about coming inside and fires are believed to be used to keep the living safe from evil spirits which is why you would you know carve faces and turnips and put light inside them um, and we now do that with pumpkins but another thing that people used to do was that all house fires um, like hearths were put out and relit with the Savin bonfires and these fires were kept burning through the night and this was seen as a sign of good luck for the house and the and the kind of community in the household. There's also an element of sun symbolism, I guess, looking at it. There's the idea of fire representing warmth and light and the promise that the sun will return after the dark months and the idea of fire keeping you going through that time. And these fires would burn through the night into the morning, which I think is nice and symbolic. And nowadays, Edinburgh have both a Beltane and a Savin Fire Festival every year, which is hugely popular. And they celebrate with kind of dances and music. Um, and on their website, they said the Savin celebration, they have the story following the overthrow of summer by Wintmer with a dramatic standoff between the summer and winter kings, um, which is overseen by the Kaliak, who is the Celtic representation of winter. And she's the one who ultimately decides the king's fate and ushers in the looming colder months, which I thought was fun. And the changing of the seasons in that line is often depicted as a struggle between two personified forces. So you've got Bera or the Kaliak from Scotland versus Angus and Bride. You've got the Oak King and the Holly King in neo-paganism, Lou and Balor and John Barleycorn, which I've always just really liked that kind of idea of a battle between the sun and the you know, the light in the dark and one of them always kind of defeating the other and coming back again. That's my little whistle stop tour of Halloween. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you for that. And one thing that I definitely agree with the transition from old to new is the carving of pumpkins over turnips. Because, I mean, if you want to keep your fingers, I would definitely say to aim for a pumpkin <laughs> this Halloween because... I was looking, I was like, oh, do you know what? I'll get a turnip and I'll give it a go because I'd read about this tradition and I thought it would be like a nice thing to do in honour of Halloween. And I'm quite a clumsy person. And I was like, I don't know if that's a particularly good idea. I used to do it a few times when I was younger. And since I've got a job, I just don't have time to carve a turnip (laughs) because it takes so long to try and carve out a turnip without stabbing yourself. The amount of time, because... It's so hard, you need quite a sharp knife. And you're pushing hard enough, you go right through it a few times, so you end up with sore fingers as well as a badly carved pumpkin. And I'm sure we'll have somebody so, right, and this is how you actually carve a turnip. There's like a, yeah. a specific turnip carving tool that you've yeah. used, but no. I, I never... Well, mine were all good at the end, but they took a very long time, and I would always nowadays carve a pumpkin instead, even though... I do like the kind of look as the pump, as the turnip they shrivel up, and I, I used to know some people that would carve them. They'd uh, wrap them in newspaper and put them in the attic for the next year, and they'd just slowly dry out and they'd be like shriveled, like shrunken heads, but Ooh, turnips. And they were quite that's a great dramatic. idea. They looked very good, but 
The amount of muscle in carving them is, yeah. is something else. Ne- never mind avocado wounds. It's, it's the, turnip, the turnip carving turnip wounds turnip that we turnip 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 wound. So now we've kind of got the the kind of origin story of Halloween and the the traditions. I just wondered if we could discuss some of the main characters in Scottish folklore because there's so many spooky, fearful very very halloween related characters and it touches on like monsters dragons witches changelings fairies both good and bad basically most of the things you'll see kids walking down the street dressed as trick-or-treating so i wanted to start with kelpies which i before i started looking into scottish folklore related to the australian sheepdog um, rather than them actually being a yeah, rather than them actually being something completely different. So yeah, when I saw that name, I wondered if the two things were somehow linked in some way. But obviously, the most famous kelpie or water monster, as they are also known, is the Loch Ness monster, um, which our international audiences will very much know about. But I think a lot of people think it was just some kind of paranormal sighting that happened a while ago without actually knowing the folklore behind it so I would love to hear more about these sea monsters kelpies and how they appear within folklore. I think the reason that Nessie has kind of latched on so much in public imagination is because of the sheer number of water creatures that we have like we've got water horses water bulls boobries blue men of the minch like a lot of selkies a lot of our folklore is tied so much to water i guess speaking to you know the the role that the sea and rivers and lochs played in our ancestors and if you see the weather at the moment most of scotland's (laughs) underwater so you can understand why so i think from my understanding nessie herself is kind of a product of the Victorian slight and going on from that kind of hype Mm. around Scottish folklore and Scotland in general. I think I've not read up about her in a while, so I'll need to jog my memory. But I think it all began with one specific photo that looked like a sea monster in, in the loch. And from there, it kind of spiraled and there was newspaper articles. It was almost like a kind of media hype. And from there, everyone kind of latched onto this idea. That definitely was the, the kind of increase of it in the 19th century. I can't remember, was it Loch Mora or Loch Ness that St. Columba fought the monster on the banks of? I think it was Loch Ness. That Loch Ness? I think so, yeah. So that'll probably have been the found this original one and from there spun it out from there. That one wasn't really described as a, a Kelpie or as a, an Ikushka, so like a waterhouse horse from the Highlands or any of them kind of things. It was almost its own type of serpent-like creature even the original sources it didn't match the kind of old folklore there the kind of the Columbian ones and nowadays with the, the kind of Victorian image it, a lot of people represent it more along the lines of some kind of the dinosaurs that, that we had yeah. roaming about at the time one of my favorite things around the Loch Ness one is the link with Loch Mora now there, there's rumoured in legend to be a, a subterranean passage between the two locks and in Loch Mora there is the evil counterpart of Nessie who will drown people in upturned boats and eat livestock, uh, a very fearsome water creature. And a lot of people have rumoured that actually it's the same creature as Nessie 
but um, it's where Nessie goes when she's in a bad mood. When she's on her holiday, she comes out to Loch Ness and just kind of floats around and appears to the odd tourist. Yeah. So that, that's one of the ones around that. <laughs> one of the, the evil one is apparently called Morag, which I just love. Like, Morag's her on a bad day. Um, but that story about St. Columba, for anyone who doesn't know it, essentially what happened was St. Columba was trying to cross the River Ness and this creature appeared and I think he sent in one of his like missionaries to basically go ward it off and the missionary came running out like oh my god there's a sea monster and St. Columba like stepped in the water said some words and the sea monster left to run off to Loch Morag and become Morag Morag, the angry Loch Ness monster yeah (laughs) yeah so I guess that would be the first ever sighting of Nessie and the the passageway between the two that Nobody's ever found, so we're, we're dubious as to his existence, but that's one of the reasons a lot of the kind of Nessie enthusiasts now give for why it hasn't been spotted with sonar or anything. It's when they it doesn't like sonar, and when people come out with that, it runs through that to lock Mora. I'll, I'll tell you what, though. If you don't want to ruin the mystery... I mean, I fully believe in Nessie. I think everyone in Scotland believes in Nessie. But if you don't want to ruin the intrigue around her... Don't go to the Loch Ness Monster Museum. Oh, I enjoyed the Loch Ness it was Monster a great, Museum. It was a great place. I loved it, but I came out feeling very cynical. Oh, no. Okay, no, I want to avoid that. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very good museum, and at the end it was like, it could be there, but pretty much the whole way around, everything they showed you was pretty much it not being there. Yeah. So... Disbelievers. <laughs> exactly. But what do they know? <laughs> I think they were doing something up there, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Maybe they've added in the section where they have found Nessie now. Who knows? <laughs> well, I'm not going just in case. <laughs> I want to believe. I was just going to say, so Nessie's just one of many kind of water monsters. Obviously, there's Morag now as well. Are they all Are they all female, for starters? And can you tell us about uh, another slightly less famous one? So the, the Kelpie of Loch Garve isn't a female. Because no, we we know the story there. The Kelpie Loch Garve's more of an Ikushka, but they they've now become kind of synonymous as one kind of creature. Beck David, all... would you like to do your TED talk? About... <laughs> <laughs> they always get on me in the podcast because I try to distinguish the two because I it's one of my real interests in folk are, are water creatures and um, and Kelpies. A lot of the original sources were kind of Sutherland sources that described it as human like on land. And then either kind of slightly mermaid or monster or water-like in the water. So a horse's head with a kind of tail in the water, but was human-like on land, but with cloven hooves. And was known for kind of being mischievous with women and deceiving people and all that kind of thing. Whereas the Kushka from the Highlands was known as being a, a horse on land and a monster in water. Um, but over the kind of last few hundred years and with the writing of a lot of the well, a lot of the writing in the Victorian time, time was done by reverence, local reverence, and they would collate tales and spin them into the one thing. So they've kind of all just become the Kelpie now, rather than two separate creatures. But anyway, this one at Loch Garve was uh, a horse on land and a monster in the water. And it was a, a particularly notorious beast um, in the region. Everyone kind of feared the loch. But one day there was a woman wandering along and she wasn't much bothered about it. She didn't believe in any of this nonsense. And as she was walking past, she saw the most lovely horse. And she reached out to, to grab it in order to take it to the town to figure out whose it was, because it shouldn't be wandering by itself along the banks of a lock. It could be eaten by a monster. And so she grabbed onto it and she got stuck tight to it and it dove head first into the lock. But 
unlike the rest of the time when it decided to devour its prey, as it transformed into a monster on the lock, it looked at the woman and fell in love with it. And then she fell in love with the beastie. And so they decided they'd make a little home under the waves, and they were happy for quite a while, until eventually she decided she was cold. She said, no, no, this, this won't work out. I'll need a fireplace. So the Kelpie and his love for the woman said, well, well, we'll just have to get you a fireplace. So he'd heard of a very good stonemason nearby, and he came onto the banks of the loch, and wandered across in the form of a horse to the stonemason, and he knew the stonemason was a bit more greedy than the woman. He'd definitely want such a nice, splendid horse as him in order to help him. So he wandered to the door, and as the stonemason came out in the morning, he couldn't believe his luck. A free horse. So he grabbed the horse, and just like before, the horse dove headfirst into the loch, and just as the stonemason lay about dying under the water, drowning, the Kelpie offered to spare his life and give him the ability to breathe underwater if he would make a chimney for it. So a stonemason agreed, but concerned so was said, how on earth are you going to make a fire under the water? And the Kelpie said, well, leave that to me. You just make me the best fireplace and chimney anyone has ever seen. So the stonemason set to work and carved a huge big fireplace with amazing nautical embellishments and spires and columns and all the way up to the top of Loch Garve he made the chimney and when it was done the Kelpie lit the fire and the woman was happy she swore she'd never want for anything more in all of her life than she had now the Kelpie so delighted with this put the stonemason back on land and not only spared his life but gave him fish for the rest of his days and the rest of the days of his family and until this day, they're said to be a part of Loch Garve that never freezes over because it's home to the Kelpinese wife and the best chimney that the world's never seen. Oh, that was so great. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I've got goosebumps. I'm going to have to go to this lock now and go check it out for myself. I'll wait for a very, very cold day. <laughs> well, you can see pictures of Bella, there is a part that doesn't freeze and that's what's said to be there. So, What I love about that story is that he's the only nice Kelpie yeah, that we have mm-hmm. ever heard of. Yeah, almost everybody almost dies, well, or does die in all of these stories apart from that one, yeah. Whereas he just falls in love, just wants to do well for his oh, wife. I, I mean, I was waiting for, for an him. unhappy ending, I'm Even not going to lie, but I mean, it's always always nice to have a happy ending. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, something else I wanted to touch on, which is a big part of... Scottish folklore and also very linked to Halloween is witches and I would love to hear a little bit more about the role that they play in these tales and how they yeah feed into folklore as a whole. So the first kind of I guess the OG witch if you like um, is Bira or the Kaliach Um, her name translates to the old woman and she is the queen of winter in Scottish folklore and mythology she's kind of a you know, a, a goddess-like figure. She created Scotland. She's got a big hammer that she use it, used to do it. Um, and she's very much within the kind of crone imagery. She's got blue skin, like ice, white hair and like rusty teeth. So she's quite terrifying. She's quite formidable. And she kind of clashes heads with Bride, who represents spring. So she's kind of like the the first proper like mythological witch, I would say. But the got a story of her if you want it. On you go. Oh, do you want me to go? Go for it. You did such a good job with the lock guard <laughs> one. <laughs> so <laughs> you've given the background brilliantly to be in there. And the, the story of her in link with Halloween was that uh, one day she was sitting up on Ben Nevis on the summit, which is her home, 
where she can survey her whole dominion, the icy wasteland that it was at the time. Uh, and she was given a vision of a, a beautiful woman marrying her son, Angus. And now Angus was, was the king of summer, and she'd always kept him at bay before, off on the Green Isles, he was out of the way. Um, but with this image, she was worried that her dominion would soon end. So she set about to capture Bride. And uh, she was a princess, the daughter of a local king, and she stole her away and kept her in her cave up in Ben Nevis and uh, made her carry out lots of chores. And eventually one day she was sent her on a, a pointless chore. She said, well, if you can do this, I'm, I might think about freeing you eventually. She gave her a, a brown fleece and said, you must go and scrub it in the lake until it is clear, until it is white, pure as day. Um, which was impossible at that point because the fleece she gave her was from a brown sheep. But she went about her task anyway and tried to scrub it clean. She was going and going and she was like, this is clean, but it's still brown. And an old man appeared in front of her and offered to make it pure white for her. And she said, okay, on you, on you go then. And he made it pure white and he said, um, if you could do one other thing for me, actually, on your way back up, take these snowdrops to Bira uh, and let her know they came from an old man. She went back up and showed the clean fleece to Bira, which took her by surprise since she didn't think it was a possible task. And then she was more taken aback when she saw the snowdrops. She went even bluer than ever, her one angry eye staring frustratedly at Bride, knowing that this could spell her doom, for nature was blooming again. But not to be defeated easily, Bira sent her hags across the land, spreading more frost and wind and rain determined not to be beat. And uh, away on the Emerald Isles, Angus sat at the same time and had a vision. He saw himself marrying the beautiful bride and bringing about summer just like Vera did. But in his vision, it was a happy one. And so he was determined to make his way across to Scotland in order to find bride to save her from the Caliac's clutches. But it was February, and if anyone knows the Irish Sea in February or the Atlantic Ocean on that part either. It's not a nice place to cross. So he stole a few days from August, or, or borrowed them, and placed them into February in order to give him calm seas and nice weather for travelling. He travelled across and saved Bride from the cave, nipped down to the lockside near Ben Nevis, and there they met the fairy queen who married them. Now the lock being frozen over, Bride dipped down for some water, and having been married now to the King of Sunner, Summer melted the lock. With that, Bira was enraged and chased after them, throwing wind and rain, and they ran off. But after a while, they decided, you know, we've got the strength now, and they came back for Bira. Bira decided she was too tired and, in need of replenishment, went to the well of youth, the fountain of youth, and regained her strength. But this took a while. So on Beltane, Bira was gone and Summer came. But by that next seven, she'd regained her strength, and winter came anew. And thus then started the endless battle between Angus and Bride and Bira to create winter and summer. Well done. So there's that. <laughs> so you can rest your witches now. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so she's the OG. But what I find so fascinating about witches in Scottish folklore is the role that the witch trials played, it was such a huge part of our history. Um, and also a really sad time, but we have so many stories about witches. Like one in particular is from Dundee, where we're from. Um, and 
you know, there's this unmarked, it's just a little stone. It's about this high um, and it's really thin. It's like a pillar and no one knows, you know, there's no words on it. There's no evidence that it's for anything. But folk tradition goes that this pillar is the the grave of the last witch to be burned in Dundee, Grizzle Jaffrey. And people will leave like coins and things on top of it as an offering. And Grizzle Jaffrey was a real person. And, you know, obviously, so were the many men and women that were burned um, because it, men also were accused of witchcraft. But a lot of their stories have kind of been immortalised in in folklore. The story of Grizzle Jaffrey is told in the style of a folktale. You know, her son goes off to sea um, and comes back and sees the flames rising over Dundee and realises that it's his mum. And I just find it so fascinating that these women who, you know, were persecuted and met such tragic ends like a lot of their stories have almost been immortalized and we still tell them to this day almost like a folktale i think that's where sometimes when we're doing things in folklore we have to sometimes watch on our podcast of when they are kind of superstitious displays of an actual person and mm. trying to persecute them, and other times where it is a fantastical image of just this mystical all-powerful being who can carve mountains from stone or can cast curses and things like that when it's just a, a fun local tale mm-hmm. or when it has been something linked to, to a real person. This one's about Edinburgh and the West Bow, which is like a street that kind of curves around in Edinburgh and it's the Witch and the Wizard of the West Bow and essentially this was a brother and a sister who lived in a house um, on the West Bow in Edinburgh and there were all these like weird accusations about them. The the wizard, like apparently he would send he had this staff with like I think it had a skull on it, right? No, I think it was a snake, was it? A snake. It oh. was really dramatic. It was like your stereotypical like wizard staff, snake, skull, the whole shop. And he would apparently send it to do errands for him. So imagine like you're at the corner shop and this staff just floats in and buys a carton of milk. Like weird, weird stuff. And, you know, there was all the kind of classic, like, oh, they're communing with the devil, holding massive, like, parties for demons and stuff. And they were accused of witchcraft. I think, obviously, the the sister got a harsher trial, again, like, levelled against her. But the, the brother, the wizard, I'm fairly certain from memory, like, they did, like, a psychological analysis on him. And he, like, just flat out was like, no, no, like... I'm a wizard. I do all this stuff. And the two of them were eventually burned at the stake and killed. But yeah, they've kind of become this big superstitious ghost story in Edinburgh because it said that you can still hear like the devil's carriage racing down the West Bow, coming to pick them up or see the staff kind of floating around. Um, So again, like real people that have generated like ghost stories and legends behind them. I think their one was quite different to most other ones, though, because they there was no indication at any point that they were subject to any of the kind of usual tortures or persuasions. They yeah. were admin, they were a witch and a wizard, and up until the very end, they were very well-reputed people in, in the community. Like, he was, was he a sergeant, or he was high up mm-hmm. in society, and up until the, the actual day that they were killed, they were given the opportunity to say they didn't do it, and they, they held by it. And, yeah. And since, what was it, the house that they were in was meant all lots of spooky kind of floatings and things happening there and items. And I think it was eventually knocked down, wasn't it? I think you're right. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was just a 
a very spooky place. Spooky place to be. <laughs> um, and you've touched on the, there being this timeline in folklore of these really ancient tales and then more contemporary stories surrounding the witch trials and there being these real people who existed, who the stories come from and have maybe been radicalised over over the years but then there's a really recent one which I read about on your website which was another famous Halloween character which was a vampire in the 1950s in Glasgow is that something that yeah like yeah. Could, could you tell us a little bit more about that as well yeah uh, the Garbles vampire is my Roman empire I love it um the Basically, the story goes that, I mean, I see the story, this is a real thing that happened and it's documented, but um, in the Gorbals area of Glasgow, um, these school children were led to believe by, you know, like when you're in school and there's a rumour about a ghost or whatever and it spreads like wildfire, they were led to believe that there was a vampire who was like six foot tall, had iron teeth, proper spooky, had been kidnapping children and this started an absolute like witch hunt across Gorbals with these children and one night actually over a series of nights they descended en masse into the local graveyard with like dogs and spikes and fire I don't know where these kids were getting this stuff from and hunting for the Gorbals vampire until it was eventually like shut down by the police and they were like right no stop that and I just always find that so fascinating because I think it's testament to the power of folklore and how easy this myth was able to spread through the kids and become so real and so tangible to the point where they thought we got to march we got to sort this out and not only did it affect the kids but it also affected the adults and it swayed the way it swayed legislation so there was real debate in parliament over american comic books they thought that maybe the garbles vampire was born from American comic books that were coming over about like Dracula and supervillains and whatnot and it was actually debated in parliament whether there should be kind of restrictions on these things um, to stop something like the Garbles vampire blowing out of proportion but it's just it's just it shows the power of word of mouth and imagination and storytelling I think that the children assembled and marched. (laughs) I just wanted to ask you one last thing, which was whether there are any stories that you guys have that are, that kind of really came to mind when I contacted you about the Halloween episode or characters or anyone that we haven't mentioned yet that you would be remiss to go away without mentioning. <laughs> so one of the characters that I was going to say was the Bavanshi, mm. which are a brilliant halloween one. They are pretty much the Scottish version of a, a vampire, really. They're typically depicted as beautiful women who would kind of lure in deer hunters because they hated all creatures apart from deer and they particularly hated deer hunters. So when the deer hunters were out at night, they would find themselves in bothies and things with these beautiful women they couldn't believe their luck and they would turn around partway through the night and there would be the evil woman leaning over them, big teeth, large claws ready to slit their throats and drink their blood. And that's how they would do it. Rather than vampires, they wouldn't sink their teeth in. They would cut their throats with their nails and drink their blood from that. And that's one creature that always comes to mind when I'm thinking dark night in the middle of a woodland, creepy haunted house. It's the Bavanshi that's That would make a great Halloween costume. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it really would. 
<laughs> well, it always gives me the the um, idea as well of when Lady Gaga was in American Horror Stories and she was the vampire one in that. It was the nails and the thing. Yeah. It was like that. She was a bad man. She in that. Yeah. She was a vampire. <laughs> Next time I go to get my nails done, I'll be like, I need five foot long nails for Halloween. Please. Oh, you'd be able to carbonate it with those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The one that I was thinking of, it would probably require like a whole podcast episode of its own because there's just so much to unpack, but um, Tam O'Shanter. So that was a, a, a very famous poem by Robert Burns, um, Scotland's National Bard. And it's this like epic poem um, that people recite every year on Burns Night. And it's about this uh, man called Tam and he wears like a wee, like a, a Tam O'Shanter hat. That's where he gets his name from. And he's down the pub late. Um, he's been drinking with his pal Suter Johnny and his wife, his poor wife is waiting at home on him and like she's she's not getting any happier and eventually Tam decides that he better get, go home so he gets on his horse Meg and rather than going the the normal way home he decides to go this like convoluted route and I can't, is there a reason why or is it just because he's drunk? I think that's just the way home. Oh is it just the way home? Okay. Oh well. Yeah mm. I think he wants to go by the cart for some reason and it's the way home from there. Yeah, Yeah. so he heads home and the whole time that he's journeying home, um, Burns kind of describes all the spooky things that he's seeing, like this is a tree where someone was hung, someone died here, blah, 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 and eventually gets to the kirk. Um, and he hears this party happening inside the church. So he like he gets off his horse and he peeks inside. And I think the whole thing is happening on Halloween, isn't it? Or it's... Implied. Um, I think I can't remember if it's on. I think it's implied that it is. Halloween. Yeah, and what he sees inside the church is uh, like ghouls and ghosts and witches. Devil all on his bagpipes. Yeah, all dancing. The devil's playing the bagpipes. They're all having a big kelly. It's a great time. And he catches sight of this one witch that he takes a bit of a fancy for. And um, I mean, this is a morality tale about not to catcall people because um, she's wearing this like short skirt, and he she does like a like a little fling. And he shouts, well done, Cutty Sark. Um, like, well done. And suddenly it all goes dark. They all look at him because he's just revealed himself. And he's like, uh-oh. <laughs> so he legs it. He jumps on his horse. And he's pelting it home as fast as he can. He's getting chased by all these creatures and witches and whatnot. And he gets to the bridge. Obviously, witches can't cross running water. He gets to the bridge and Cutty Sark, the witch that he cat called essentially grabs his horse's tail but meg the horse bless her like just keeps going the tail gets wrenched off but he makes it across the water and he and he gets home and it's just a great poem and it's like so iconic um and i could really believe that like some drunk guy in a pub would stumble across the church and be like i saw the devil playing the bagpipes there was witches and the wife's like go to bed <laughs> It's quite good one of the podcasts we had on. We had a, a, a descendant of Sir Johnny we that did. sits drinking with Tam O'Shanter at the pub. Oh, wow. So. Amazing. Well, I mean, just on the mention of your podcast, it's amazing. And obviously anybody that's listening, if you loved these stories that you've heard today and want to take a deeper delve into it, it's just like the most amazing audio book you've ever heard. So I'll include the links to that in um, the show notes for people to be able to access and I guess I just want to finish by saying a massive thank you to both of you for joining me today like I've been excited all week 
um, about recording this and I'm really excited to put it out at there because I think people are going to really love it. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for having us. <laughs> I want to pass the puck to Matt uh, to give us a little glimpse into the future. Uh, what is our next episode? Yeah, so the next episode is uh, an interview that I conducted uh, with an author whose name is Ben Montgomery. Um, and he wrote a biography of uh, this woman known as Grandma Gatewood. Love her um, name. <laughs> right, I know it's awesome, and so, so iconic. <laughs> totally, totally, <laughs> and so Grandma Gatewood is this um, very famous figure in the long distance hiking community, uh, and so a lot of our listeners are probably aware because I've been chatting about it periodically that um, that I threw hiked the Appalachian Trail last year, and I've been you know, conducting lots of interviews and working on putting together a documentary podcast series about the Appalachian Trail. And so, yeah, this guy, Ben Montgomery, he's actually a distant relative of Grandma Gatewood, um, which is part of his inspiration for writing this biography. Grandma Gatewood um, through hiked the Appalachian Trail. So she hiked this trail end to end, walked from Georgia to Maine uh, back in the 1950s. She was in her 60s when she did it. And so this was happening in the 50s when, you know, these days you you talk about through hiking the Appalachian Trail, like most people at least have some sense of what you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. And there are several thousand people each year who attempt to do this 2,200 mile long hike. But back in the 1950s, this was unheard of, right? There were maybe like, there were less than 10 people at the, this point who had ever completed the entire Appalachian Trail end-to-end in in this way, like what we now call a thru-hike. Once folks started to find out about what she was doing, uh, she became a celebrity. And so, you know, by the time she was a few months into this long hike, you know, it usually takes like four to six months to hike the entire distance of the Appalachian Trail. Once she was a few months in, like journalists started to, uh, they started like meeting her at like road crossings so they could do interviews with her. Um, This was a major, major national news story uh, at the time in the 1950s. Um, And she was a sensation, you know, I mean, and she like after she successfully completed her hike, you know, she was featured on all the, you know, biggest television talk shows of the day. Um, And then she went back and did it two more times. Wow, two more times. Yes, yeah, she, she threw so hiked the entire distance of the Appalachian Trail three times. She also did like a coast to coast hike. So long distance hiking became her thing. She became you know an, an avid uh, sort of proponent of uh, long distance hiking, um, and uh, you know became very well known. Like is still very well known within sort of long distance hiking uh, circles. And yeah, just a amazing story. And, you know, I think the sort of twist that the author, Ben Montgomery, puts on it that I think um, before he wrote this book was not something like not, not, I don't know, he put it in a certain context that I think it hadn't been analyzed in previously, which is that at the time in the 1950s, the Appalachian Trail was a very obscure thing. And Grandma Gatewood basically put it on the map. 
um, popularize this idea of a through hike. And if it wasn't for what she did, then it, it, you know, the trail could have ended up become, you know, like ceasing to exist or sort of falling out, like not sort of entering like the mainstream as it has in our culture today. Music from today's episode was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoyed this podcast, please send us a review as we'd love to hear from you and get even more bonus content about the episode from following us on social media at Earth to Humans Pod.